Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. We're about to do this Stuff You Should Know thing. Yeah. (laughs) Did you like that? (laughs) I did. How you doing, man? Great. Now that I've switched out my foul-smelling microphone cover. Yeah, this is actually take two. This thing's nasty. (laughs) I'm not getting near it, but I can only imagine. Yeah, Mm -hmm. something's putrefacted on the um, mic cover, the P-Clipper cover. Yeah. Weird. You know... In real studios, they change these out every now and then. <laughs> these things have been running for at least a year Probably now, like right? 50 cents. All right. What's your, Chuck, what's your sterling intro? Speaking of 50 cents, do you remember when we were talking about uh, fossils? Oh, yeah. And we said that every once in a while, something happens so that a fossil naturally occurs um, and that it's desiccated. Mm-hmm. The skin is dried out. Yeah. That's a mummy. Yeah. Who knew? I knew. Yeah, me too. Actually, when we <laughs> talked about that, I was like, we have to do how mummies work. Yeah. And here we are. I'm kind of surprised this one has slipped under the radar for so long. This yeah. is right up our alley. Yeah. Um, I went and looked. I'm like, surely we do have it. And bing, Fascinating. There it was. Gruesome. Yeah. It's it's like stuff you should know died in the wool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you're about to hear why, dear listeners, because we're about to talk about all the things that happen to a corpse after death, which we've done before, but we need yeah. to go over again. Mummies are cool, though. They are very cool. So, Chuck, let's say that you were stabbed in the stomach enough times so that you could not move any longer. Okay. You couldn't walk back home. It was out in the woods, and the one person you were with, the very person who stabbed you, left you there to die. You bleed out. You're dead. Things start happening to your body, right? Yeah, pretty quickly. Up first is autolysis. Yes. That is, uh, that's kind of gruesome. That's when your organs that have digestive enzymes actually say, well, this is what we do, so we're going to start digesting the organs. Right, and not like my stomach is eating itself because I'm hungry, like my stomach is actually eating itself. It's rupturing and oozing, and it's 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 being reduced to nothing. Yeah. Um, while that's going on, and that actually, I think if I remember correctly, that kind of helps kickstart the process of putrefaction, right? Yeah, autolysis starts within a few hours right. after you're dead. The if, body, the body knows. And if you want like a really um, big overview of this or an in-depth look at what happens to the body immediately after death, you should listen to our rigor mortis podcast if you haven't already. Oh, yeah, Classic. that body farms we uh-huh. talked about it in there too. Uh, so yes, putrefaction. You're right. Is followed by uh, or follows autolysis, and that is when uh, bacteria does its little job and reduces everything to a skeleton. And, you know, depending where you are, this can happen in a few months. Right, depending on where you are. Now, we as human beings are a subtropical species, right, Chuck? You know that. Sure. So uh, we are designed, if you believe in that kind of thing, to decompose, decompose most readily in a warm, humid climate. That's where the bacteria that breaks down our mm-hmm. tissue lives or thrives. Moisture, warmth. If you have cold, dry, yeah, things change a little bit. Like a refrigerator. Exactly. Um, which is a good place to store a body if you want to preserve it. Or food if you want to eat it. That's a good point, too. Or a body if you want to eat it. For an in-depth look at that, uh, you might want to listen to our cannibalism podcast, though. That's right. Right? Um, 
But let's say you don't have a refrigerator. Nature provides it for you mm-hmm. in, on some occasions. There's Utsi, the Iceman, right? Uh, yeah, is he the Iceman? Yeah, that's the Iceman. Yeah, 1991 in the Italian Alps. This dude is very well-preserved, natural mummy. Like, it's amazing. Died and basically got buried in ice and kind of stayed that way. Yeah, I, I think they have the impression that he fell into a crevasse, yeah. died, but it was during like a blizzard maybe. And he was covered with snow and ice that stuck around for millennia. Um, but he's so well-preserved, you can see the tattoos on his um, skin still. Yeah, and, well, and we knew, hey, they tattooed people 5,300 years ago. Exactly. A little window into what life was like for Iceman. Yeah, he um, he was uh, he had, I think, a nice little set of arrows and his bow and sure. uh, Copper Age, European mm-hmm. guy. I think he, he had a, a wallet-sized photo of of you as well. Of me? Yeah. It's not possible. He was from the future. That's my. That's what I think. <laughs> you just blew my mind, Chuck. <laughs> good. So ice, as we talked about in fossils too, um, was a uh, is a very good preservant. Sure. But nothing does it. Oh, peat bogs too. Remember, I finally oh, showed yeah. you that picture of Tolan Man. Uh huh. Can't and forget about Pete. Again, if you have not gone and looked up Tolan Man, it's awesome. Like his whiskers are still there. I know. And he lived a, a couple thousand years ago. Right. What's his name? Did they name him? Just Tolan Man? Tolan Man. I would have named him Petey. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I know. Um, so those two are pretty good. But the money, the natural money preservant is sand. Yeah, I had no idea. The reason why sand is such a great preservant is because it actually wicks away and absorbs and just removes the um, any type of humidity in the body, which allows the body to desiccate which means that there is no place for bacteria to live, which means the tissue the tissue remains intact and that's all a, bo- a mummy is. Yeah. It's a it's a corpse with its tissue intact. Well, and this kind of kick-started the whole uh mummification, artificial mummification craze in Egypt because at first they buried bodies, they weren't in caskets, they were in, you know, buried in the hot sand. Yeah. And that preserved the body for so long they said well, hey, if the body's preserved, then that means the spirit's preserved, and this all of a sudden we have new views on the afterlife and life. Right. So what they decided to do, and this was so. What I guess what you've just said though is that mummification, the the whole concept of mummies that we have mm-hmm. that was so ingrained in the Egyptian culture happened by accident, right? Yeah. Um. So they started. They figured this out. So they start purposefully burying people in the sand with the intent of them being mummified. Yes. Right? Um, but the problem is somewhere along the way they, they begin to have horrible thoughts of their dead relatives choked with sand. Right. So they started to say, maybe we should put some sort of barrier up in between the, the corpse and the sand. Yeah. And that led to caskets, right? Yeah. It started with just like a wicker covering, and then that eventually led to wooden boxes. Uh, but here's the rub. Yeah. Now the body is not preserved. Now the body rots, desiccates. Well, no, it doesn't it's desiccate. An, it's just a normal corpse now. Yeah, it becomes a skeleton. You put a barrier between the body and the preservant in the form of a tomb. So, What's an Egyptian to do then? Well, the Egyptians, being the very pious culture that they were, and the very um, intuitive and smart culture that they were, you should for that you should go read, um, did the Greeks get all their ideas from the Africans? Good article. Did you write that one? Yeah, did we do that podcast? No, man, let's do that. Okay. Um, they, they decided that they needed to rectify their, um, their religious beliefs with 
their um, problem, their their yeah. need to preserve bodies. And and what did they do? Well, they said maybe we can replicate this natural process that we've discovered through man-made artificial means. And that's trial and error. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, it's called embalming, Josh. And they actually figured out, Chuck, that like um, one of the one of the problems with the desiccation, the natural desiccation in the desert, mm-hmm. um, was that the skin turned like this crisp brown, right? Like, you know, overbaked chicken. Yeah, it's exactly what it looks like, actually. Yeah, and um, with these embalming techniques that they eventually mastered, they they could they could preserve a body better than. It, it could be preserved naturally, which is man conquering nature. That's right. Conquering uh, death even. Well, come on. It's close. Uh, they didn't uh, have huge success at first. They um, they would embalm the bodies mainly to keep it away from the elements, wrap it in linen soaked in resin, and they would create nice little shapely forms that look kind of like people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that didn't really do a whole lot because the bandages didn't really halt the composition. They basically figured out that it happens from the inside out. Right. It took so, them. A, it took them a few centuries, if not millennia. They're basically wrapping it up, and it's just disintegrating within the bandages at first. Right, but those bandages are important because they stick around pretty much the whole time. Same with the resin, right? Yes. So those two very early embalming techniques or mummification techniques um, stuck around. Yeah. But it was a big leap when they figured out, oh wait a minute, this is going on inside, and so we need to start addressing that. By removing organs. Right. And it's about here, I think, that we we hit the middle kingdom. And like the the mummies that we think of were produced in the from the 18th to 20th dynasties of the middle kingdom. Yeah. The, the, that was when the like the heyday of mummification. Right. Right. Which was um, between 1570 and 1075 B.C. Yeah. The mummies that we think of, the ones that are still around, like really well preserved today, they, they were preserved during this time. Right. Right. So. What do you do when when you realize that everything bad is happening to a corpse from the inside out? How do you how do you address that? Should we just walk through the process one by one, the gruesome process? Yeah. Okay. First thing you do is you take it, and it, it varies. You know the different processes, and and within the processes they had uh, uh, things that they would say, sort of like religious rites that they would go through as well. Yeah. It's a very sacred process. Yeah. Uh, but they would take the body generally to the red land, desert region. It's not near a whole lot of people, so people aren't grossed out. But it is near the Nile River. They needed the Nile River to, well, we'll see that in a second. Step one. Step one. You need the Nile for step one. Uh, they think they did it in open tents, obviously, to get some good ventilation going. And uh, the first place they took the body was to the Ibu, the place of purification. Yeah, that was basically the Nile, or the place where they, the, the, the place near the Nile where they rinse the body with, they, they wash the body off. Yeah, it's like a rebirth, uh, symbol of rebirth. Right. So the, the, the corpse was hastened, or some of the spirit was hastened in the afterlife. And we should probably say here, so it doesn't get too confusing, there were three spirits, um, that the Egyptians believed comprised a person, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, Ka, the Ba, and the Ak. Ak. Yeah, A-K-H. Yeah, <laughs> it's always tricky to pronounce that. Right. So I think um, with this purification process, the uh, ka or the or the ba or the ach were were moved along to the to the next world. Yeah. But the ka that was the one that was um, inextricably linked with the corpse, which became the whole reason for mummification, 
as long as the corpse was preserved, the ka was preserved. Mm-hmm. And the afterlife could, you know, the, the person could live in the afterlife. But once the corpse died, the ka died, and that second death was final, yeah. which is why they wanted to preserve bodies in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's like the opposite of ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's right. Uh, so after they've washed the body and sort of reborn it in the rivers of the Nile, uh, they carry the body to the Per Nefer, and that is the house of mummification. And this is kind of where, this is the, the basement of the Fisher house, basically. Huh? And six feet under the Fishers. Oh, yeah. This is in the basement. This is where Rico <laughs> and uh, the gang would get to work. Yeah. Um, they would lay it on a wooden table, the body. Uh, they remove the brain by hammering a chisel through the bone in the nose. You know, I knew that already before this article. There's they, like a, they did a Christian Slater's in like, <laughs> he's in like one of the creep shows or, um, amazing, amazing stories or tales from the crypt, the movie. Uh huh. Pump and up the volume. It might have been that, <laughs> but I think it was like a, a, a smaller, um, vignette, like a mini movie within the larger movie. And it was called like lot number nine or whatever. And, Gleaming the cube. I think it was. No, that's called Brotherhood of the Tiger. Now I think they changed really? the name. Yeah. Anyway, they, there's a mummy who's hell bent on taking other people's brains using these hooks or whatever. Well, and that's exactly what they do. They make a, a nose hole, basically larger than the nostrils. They insert a big hook, iron hook, and start scooping it out. Eventually, yep. they go down to a spoon, and eventually, they just rinse out the remaining bits of brain. Yeah. And what's funny is, so hold on, they discard the brain because they thought, I don't know why we have this stuff in our head, but right. we probably don't need it in the afterlife. Right. Which is kind of unusual for the Egyptians because they, they preserved organs. Yeah. You know? But the but brain. not the brain. No. <laughs> and what's what's funny, though, like, I think what we just kind of meandered past that we should kind of um, meditate on for a second, Chuck, is that they get to a point where they fill the head with water. Mm-hmm. I imagine close the nose and the mouth <laughs> yeah. and shake the head around to slosh uh-huh. all the stuff out and then lean the head over and... Let all the last bits come out. Yeah, that's how I would do it. And I wonder if they did shots of that stuff as like part of the ceremony. Eh, I would draw the line there. Would you? Well, they probably just thought, I don't know, they didn't even know what the brain was. Yeah, that's true. No. It's just waste. So the brain's out, Josh. Uh, then they take a blade made from uh, obsidian, mm-hmm. sacred stone, cut a little incision on the left side, and reach in and start pulling out the organs that they can get to. Right. And then preserving those, like you said. Except for the kidneys, because they didn't think they were important either. Which they were, you know, I mean, the kidneys are important, but it's not like brain important. Well, I mean, you need kidneys to live. I'm sure they preserve the appendix. Technically, you need all of, yeah, right. (laughs) That was probably the most holy of the organs. So they actually, when they preserve these things, they would, um, they would wrap them in, uh, in resin strips of linen, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, they would mummify each organ. Yeah. And then they put them in thing, in canopic jars. Basically, it was like, here's your body, and then also, here are your organs. Don't forget Take those. Take these with you. Yeah. They'd leave the heart, though, because they thought the heart was, you know, linked to the soul and the yeah. spirit. And uh, they're kind of on the money there, I think. So these organs take up space in our um, chest and abdominal cavities. Um, so they would actually um, stuff the body with, like, incense and other materials as well, right? Yeah. Well, first they'd rinse it. Once they, like, well, I forgot, they'd take out the lungs to the abdomen. Oh, yeah, right right there. You can't get a lung right out to the, rib the little side slit. And then they would rinse the chest cavity with palm wine, and then they would stuff it with they would uh, shake the patchouli, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Straw. 
Well, it didn't say what, actually. It just said other materials. I don't know. I would use straw. Maybe frankincense. A little myrrh. Yeah. To complete the trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, straw, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah, straw. That uh, that kept the, the uh, body from, like, caving in on itself, basically. Yeah. Maintaining a little bit of shape. And then here is the key. This is the key to mummification. And as a matter of fact, I was going to say it now. I found it on the Internet. There is a uh, step-by-step, very easy-to-follow recipe on, um, I think, WikiHow, which I don't normally go on, but it's the only place I can find a recipe for mummifying a chicken using the um, Egyptian method, and it calls for um, natron, right? Yeah, that's the key. Natron is this um, basically a compound that the Egyptians figured out they could gather and, and, and combine from the Nile, which is basically... Baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, mm-hmm. and um, salt, table salt, sodium chloride. Yeah, you mix the two together, and it becomes this perfect preservant. So they would put natron powder, which is like this, just accelerated the technique of mummification, like oh, yeah. by light years. Sure, um, and they would cover the body with this stuff and leave it, and it would just completely dry the body out, right? Yeah, this took about forty days. They had to guard the body while this was going on, obviously, because they didn't want vultures digging through the natron for what lies beneath. After the 40 days, they uh, move the body then to the wabet, which is the house of purification. Yank all that incense and the stuffing out, refill it with the natron, mm-hmm. resin-soaked linen, and other materials, again, <laughs> whatever these mysterious things are. Then they would sew all the incisions up, cover the skin with resin, and then uh, say, hey, it's time to wrap this puppy. Yeah, and this is where we get the idea for the the mummy, our modern idea of a mummy, always wearing like yeah. bandages. <laughs> They're always coming off. Yeah, they don't. You can their... just see the eyes, yeah, maybe exactly. some like teeth or something. <laughs> yeah. So, this is where we're at. They're at the bandaging procedure. That thirty-five or forty days, while um, the natron powder was doing its work, wicking mm-hmm. away all of the, basically acting as the desiccant. Yeah. Um, the the family of the deceased was going around town, going. Do you have any linens we can have forever? Yeah. Uh, do you have some linens we can have? And How'd you like your linens to spend eternity in the <laughs> heavens above? With our dad. Um, they collected about 4,000 square feet, just top, top of my head. That's about how much they gathered sure. right? um, of linen and would bring it to the embalmers. And the embalmers would say, hey, we like this piece. That piece is horrible. Um, are you really going to bury your, your dad in this? Right. And they would take the best stuff and they would cut it into, or they would tear them into strips three to eight inches wide of bandages and they would start the wrapping, which That's would right. take a little while, right? Yeah, it takes uh, a week or two, uh, I guess, probably depending on how big the body is. Mm-hmm. Common sense. Uh, start with the hands and feet. You wrap all, this is the initial uh, under wrapping, I guess. You wrap everything individually. Each little finger, each little toe, yeah. everything's wrapped. And then once everything's wrapped individually, they do a whole body wrap, uh, applying new layers, coating the linen with, again, the hot resin to keep everything in place, uttering spells. Sometimes they would wrap uh, amulets over different parts of the body, wrap it up in there with you, right. protect you in the next world, that kind of thing. Right. And then presto changeo, you are a mummy. And before we go further, the process we've just described, this really 
ornate, wonderful, <laughs> lengthy process. I know where this is going. You would think about it. Like there's so many, there were a lot of Egyptians running around and a lot of them died on any given day. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of work to be done. So this process that we just described was for the people who had lots of money. For some reason, the wealthy have always been revered, right? And have for always gotten special treatment, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, if you were just an ordinary schmo like me or Chuck, you were going to get the budget package, which is basically <laughs> like instead of like carefully removing all of the organs, preserving each one, they would inject oil, like this oil mixture, into your um, cavities, let it sit for a few days. Um, it so would stop up all your orifices first so it yes. wouldn't leak out. Thank you. Yeah. So I don't know how they did that. I guess with other materials. <laughs> yeah, right. So they would stop you up full of oil, let it, let you sit for a few days, and then unstop your orifices and let all the oil drain out, and it it would carry the liquefied organs and tissue out with it. It's a lot easier and a lot faster. So even this many thousands of years ago, you get what you pay for. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty sad. Yeah. There's so, always been a budget package. Or maybe that's a good thing, that it wasn't only just reserved like, if you don't have any money, you just can't get mummified. That's a way to go. They thought, you know what? Let's think of a cheaper way to do this for you folks. Right. Let's just fill you up with oil, stop up your orifices, and <laughs> give you a good shake. Yeah. So um, you're you're prepared. You're all wrapped. However they got your organs out, they're out. You're bandaged. Um, and you are now about to be outfitted with what's called a, a cartonage cage, which is kind of like a breastplate, mm-hmm. um, some cool, like, forearm... Uh, armor, yeah, uh, leg armor, pretty much this thing that's going to hold your body together for a while. Right. And a um, funerary mask, which is like the famous masks we think of when we think of like King Tut. Like it's a death mask. Yeah. And these were extremely important because they directed the spirit, the ka, mm-hmm. to the, the right body afterward. So it was in a person's visage. Yeah. Or possibly that of a god, but the... Uh, the spirit would be in on you know what to look for. They would know that. That's how they knew they who say, was who. Sure, this guy is supposed to look supposed to either look like Josh or Anubis. Either way, I think that's him right over there. Right. So let's grab him. And speaking of Anubis, you would be committed to your tomb, uh, following a, a funeral procession where you were carried in your suet, right? Which yeah, is- that's what you think of with King Tut. That's the casket that looks like a person. Like the gold casket in the shape of a human. Right. It's a suet. It's a suet. Um, that would be carried to your tomb, uh, and there would be a priest dressed as the jackal god Anubis. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, there was the ceremony of the mouth, which is pretty <laughs> cool, because there was some sort of weird understanding, I guess, that um, you had died. Right. And now certain things had to be restored. And the ceremony of the mouth was um, this... Um, Passing over of sacred objects to like the uh, across the suet's face, the casket's face, um, and it would restore your five senses. Yeah, because you need that exactly. So you're placed, and this is weird, Chuck. Did you find this odd that your casket was placed leaned up against the wall? Yeah, it almost like I would do that while I was getting everything ready, <laughs> and then I would lay it down. So it almost made me think that they kind of forgot. And they say, oh, well, we left that first one leaning against the wall, so I guess that's the way we do it. Yeah. But that's not true. No. <laughs> I'm sure they had a very good reason. Probably because it was easier to just walk up right out of there. Well, yeah, I would think they wanted to leave it upright, but 
standing it upright. They didn't have like the perfectly level floor. Probably wasn't uh, too secure, so they just gave it a little lean. Sure, a little help, which is far less secure than just laying it down on the floor. Oh yeah. Um, following that, you are uh, your furniture. Don't forget your canopic jar of organs laid next to you. A little food, maybe? Sure. Um, your furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the stuff you're going to need in the next life to be comfortable. Yeah. And you're set. Your tomb is sealed up, and it's probably inscribed with something along the lines of, as for anybody who shall enter this tomb in his impurity, I shall wring his neck as a bird's. As a standard um, mummy curse. Yeah, a mummy curse on the tomb. Yeah, people became, in the uh, 1920s, Howard Carter dug up King Tut's uh, tomb, mm-hmm. and people were just crazy for mummies at the time. Yeah. Westerners are like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. This curse thing is so neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laurel and Hardy are doing mummy curse movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, a microbiologist from Germany named Gotthard Kramer, mm-hmm. or Kramer, uh, said there may be something to this curse thing because they bury people with food, produces mold spores. So when they unearth this tomb, all these mold spores are released into the air and it might kill you. So it's not that there's something to the curse, but it could lead people to tie the two together. Well, if you unearth a tomb, then you die. Certainly there's something weird about the Carter expedition who um, unearthed King Tut's tomb in 1922 because uh, 11 of the people who were involved, not necessarily present but involved, um, died within seven years. And I think eleven his, people in a canary. His canary died like um, right, right when they entered the tomb. A cobra ate it. That's bad luck. It is, and then it just went downhill from there. Um, so there's all sorts of explanations, but it's also um, oddly intriguing. And like you said, Egypt mania gripped the West. Oh yeah, they loved it. Right. Um, and there was actually unraveling parties where people would get their hands on mummies and then like yeah. unbandage them. See what's in there? Which is like, that's not what you do with a dead body. That's desecration. Yeah. It's bad luck, too. Uh, so that pretty much is the Egyptian mummy, and that's what we mainly think of, but they weren't the first people to do this kind of thing. No. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Yeah. they uh, The first, the oldest mummies actually on the planet are uh, from northern Chile, the Chinch- Chinchoro people. Yep. Chinchoro? Let's go with Chinchoro. Okay. Uh, this, they started doing this about 2,000 years before the Egyptians, but they were not very much like, uh, the Egyptians. They basically dismembered and disemboweled the body, put it back together again, sewed it up, and then covered it with, uh, black mud. Well, they, they put it back together with, like, straw and sticks. And that's what they had. It was like, they made Cupid dolls out of, like, these bodies. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Covered it with black mud and shaped it into a human form. Uh, but they believe that this wasn't necessarily done to preserve the body for the afterlife. Maybe it was more for uh, the people left on the planet Earth to mourn the death of their loved one. Keep them around a little longer. Which is very sweet. Because they saw evidence of, like, retouching of the paint, mm-hmm. signs of wear and tear. So that, you know, basically they were kept in the households for a little while, they yeah. think. Basically it's statues, freaky, freaky statues. Yeah. Uh, and that was... 5,000 B.C., which is 2,000 years before the Egyptians came onto the scene at all. That's right. Um, and the, uh, what would you say, the Chinchoro people? Yeah, they Chinchoro? were. Chinchoro. What did uh, you settle on? I, I think I went with Chinchoro. But someone will point that out if I'm wrong. <laughs> Agreed. Um, they're not the only ones in South America who got into mummification either. The Incas 
very famously did as well, they had a little habit of sacrificing children to yeah. their gods. Jerks. Um, and they, cultural relativism, Chuck. Oh, that's right. Not and jerks. They would, um, that through this process, like the child and the child's family were just treated like, like, uh, royalty yeah. before this. Like it was a, a high honor to be chosen to be sacrificed to the gods. Um, and they would get the child really wasted on this, uh, fermented, Corn concoction. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the child up to the uh, cave. Sometimes I think they would whack the kid over the head, or other times they would get the child so wasted that um, they just would leave him there in the cold temperatures, exposed to the freezing temperatures, and the child would die of exposure. I can't say jerks about this. You can. You're jerks. <laughs> um, but the there's a very famous mummy called the Maiden, who's a 15 year old girl. And she was sacrificed as a thanks to the gods for a really good corn harvest by the Incas in Peru 500 years ago. Oh, yeah? Did you see that picture I sent you? Uh, oh, yeah. Was that her? It's like looking at a girl who's sleeping, but she's been dead for 500 years. Yeah. Like, you, you, if you've been to South America, as I know you have, or Central America, like, she looks just like one of those girls you might see down there, like a Central American indigenous person. She's probably short then. She looks kind of short. Yeah. That'd be funny if she was like 6'2". <laughs> but then moving on up, there's also one, and it didn't make it into this um, article, but Chuck, I've been there myself. Guanajuato, Mexico uh-huh. has a mummy museum, and they have the world's smallest mummy. I think it might have been a fetus. Really? But it, it, they were all naturally mummified um, to the great surprise of the 19th century townspeople who had to move a graveyard and found like, okay, there's a lot of mummies. How big was it? It was very small. Give me an object. Uh, coffee cup. Coffee cup. Okay. Standard coffee cup size. <laughs> gotcha. But then there's like people, they're still wearing their suits and it's, it's really amazing. You walk into this little Mexican building and there's just m- dead people everywhere just behind this glass. It's very neat. If you That's ever awesome. go to Guanajuato, Mexico, you have to go to the Mummy Museum. I think I should. Yeah. Uh, Lady Chang, China. Chinese were, they were, Lousy with mummies. Yeah. They, they love to mummify people. Uh, she was an aristocrat from about 2,000 years ago, and she is uh, believed to be about the best preserved ancient mummy so far. Did you see her picture? Yeah. With her tongue sticking out? Pretty well mummified. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. her hair still? Yeah. She was... Uh, they haven't studied her a whole lot. The Chinese haven't, so they don't know exactly how she was uh, prepared. But they do think that mercury in the embalming fluid might have had something to do with it. Yeah, that, I would imagine that will do it. Mercury? Yeah. Sure. And um, also in China, mummies uh, have kind of rewritten history a little bit. Um, some very, very ancient mummies from um, 1000 B.C., before 1000 B.C., um, they found some people of Indo-Iranian descent. Yeah, and they're like, what? They linked them to, um, like, basically Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Uh, through tattoos and like other um, implements that they had. And the shape of their face, the way they looked. Yep. And they figured out like, wait a minute, these people were like Indo-European traders. What are they doing here? And they just made their way to settle right in in the uh, deserts of China uh, before the Han Dynasty ever showed up. Yeah. So that kind of changed things a little bit. I'm sure. Uh, if we talk about mummies, we got to talk about the uh, more modern day mummies. Because of the big interest in mummification, thanks to Tut being found, was the big one. Yeah. Uh, that's right around the time Lenin died in Russia. 
And they said, you know what, let's preserve linen and uh, display them in the Kremlin. So that's exactly what they did. And we do not know exactly how because it's an ancient Russian secret. Mm-hmm. I don't know about ancient, but it's a Russian secret. Mm-hmm. And they uh, it's ongoing because they continue uh, to immerse him in a preservative bath every now and then. And he wears a waterproof suit. That's right. <laughs> and if you've ever seen pictures of Lennon or Ava Perone, they look pretty lifelike. Yeah. But hers was hers was way cool. They basically replaced all the fluids in her body with wax. Right. Which would be a very modern take on the ancient practice. There's also um, incorruptible corpses of the Catholic faith. What's that? It's basically a person who is so pure on earth uh, that they their body just didn't didn't rot, and there's examples of them. Huh? There's one. He's like a prince. He's like a child prince. I think he died in like he died more than a thousand years ago, or about a thousand years ago. Um, and his his body's totally preserved, and there's no evidence that he was embalmed or anything like that. What they don't understand. There are some bodies out there that just. Defy logic. I wrote an article on it. You should read it. It's a miracle. How can a corpse be incorruptible? We need to... Are you keeping track of these awesome ideas? Incorruptible. Where, where's our person? Where's our boy Charlie? <laughs> or no, our boy Friday. Okay. Charlie. I don't know where I got that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, Josh, finally, we have uh, in the 1970s, some scientists discovered something called plastinization. And that is when all of the water and lipids in the body cells... Are replaced with polymers, and mm-hmm. you basically become like plastic, very flexible and durable. Uh, you don't decompose, and you don't stink too bad. And that is used to preserve bodies, mainly for anatomical research at this point. Or for uh, bodies world or bodies the exhibit. Have you been? No, I've never been, but mm-hmm. that's how they do it. It is really something. I mean, you're right there up on this corpse, missing its skin, and like it is a dead person. Yeah. Um and it's really interesting. There's one, the, the one that I went to in Atlanta, it's two eyeballs, mm-hmm. and they're connected to the spinal cord, which is going down. And then those, coming off the spinal cord are the major nerves of the central nervous system. And that's it. And it's just laid out perfectly wow. and really kind of surprising. I'm shocked that I haven't been to that yet. It's pretty cool. It's definitely worth going to. I did the dialogue in the dark thing. I have not been there. But that's next door. Yeah. That, was that good? You know... I was a little disappointed. Yeah, not in the exhibit itself, but the way the way they do it, uh, I think it could have been like really awesome. But the way they do it, it wasn't as awesome as it could have been. Just you, my take. Yumi and her sister went, and she said they would have liked it, but there was this very loud drunk woman who kept like falling into people that well, they wanted to kill. <laughs> Nothing you can do about that. Yeah. And you're in the dark weather; you could just like kick her in the shin and run away. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We should mention Bob, uh, Doctor Bob Breyer, real quick though. Uh, he is a Egyptologist who, in 1994, said, "You know what? I want to try and replicate the the Egyptian technique." And he did with it. Chicken. Was, yeah, with a chicken. <laughs> and he did it. It was pretty successful at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And um, one of the things he learned from doing this that the uh, the way the body ends up looking is a result of the mummification process, not the fact. Yeah. That it's been in the ground for thousands and thousands like of years. Like the, the shriveled, wrinkled look. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing you learned. That's a big thing to learn, though. I mean, think about it. That's Egyptology hasn't really advanced much in the last 50 years, has it? Not that I know of. I know Geraldo didn't find squat. 
No, he didn't. No, that wasn't Geraldo. Geraldo looked for um, Capone's Oh, that's vault. right. I watched that one. That was fun. I was a youngster, and I was so excited. And Yeah, but so disappointed when it happened. <laughs> it was just a total disaster. Yeah. Poor Geraldo. Well, that's it for mummies, right, Chuck? You got any more? I'm... I'm Are you mummied out? Yep. All right. Um, If you want to learn more about mummies, check out M-U-M-M-I-E-S in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. You can learn how to mummify a chicken on WikiHow. And um, what else? I think there might be a website for the mummies of uh, Wanawanto. That's, I think, G-U-A-N-A-J-U-A-T-O, maybe? Sounds good to me. Does it? You know, I think... uh Matt and Rachel from Coolest Stuff on the Planet did a thing on the Egyptian mummy. Oh, yeah? Museum. Or not Egyptian mummy museum, the, the mummy museum. The Wanawanto mummy museum? Yeah. Yes. Coolest well, Stuff on the Planet, check it out. That is definitely worth watching as well. It's worth watching anyway. And I said handy search bar somewhere in there, which means I guess time for listener mail. Uh, hi, Chuck and Josh and Jerry. My name is Matty. I'm 12 years old. I love your podcast. I wait all day at school to get home so I can check for new podcasts. They always help me fall asleep. But not because they're boring, but because it gets my brain thinking and the brain gets tired. That's cool, man. That's fine. Uh, I was wondering if you'd give a shout-out to my best bud, Casey. Uh, Casey has a tumor in his leg and is in a wheelchair. He tells me he is uh, very miserable, but at least he gets to listen to me talk about you guys. And fun fact, he also has a pet rooster named Lewis. Sweet. And Lewis is house-trained, so he just (laughs) runs around the house. (laughs) That is awesome. House-trained chicken. So uh, please give Lewis, I'm sorry, Casey a shout, and Lewis while we're at it. Sure. Uh, make him feel better. It would make his day or even his year. And tell me which podcast you're going to put it on, because I am just 12 and some of them are inappropriate. Oh, was this one appropriate? Uh, I don't know. Probably not the shaking the brain part out. We'll figure it out. Okay. We'll uh, tell him to just listen to the listener <laughs> mail and let his parents right. listen to the rest. And, and also a suggestion, the infamous story of that French queen who said, let them eat cake. I don't remember her name. That's... <laughs> Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette. That was Kirsten Dunst. Uh, And remember, I do not have Facebook, so please answer me by email, she says. And then... Oh, is it a she? Is uh it DD or TT? It's DD. Oh, okay. And then uh, her signature is potato and a mushroom Mm -hmm. from Maggie. I don't even know what that means. All the kids are saying it these days. Really? Yeah. All right. Potato and a mushroom, everybody. You said Maggie. It's Maddie, right? Maddie. Okay, Maddie. Thanks for that email, Maddie. Did we give a shout-out to Lewis and Casey? Well, Casey, we hope you're feeling better, bud. I'm sorry to hear about that and hope you're up and around before you know it. Take care of Lewis. Yes. If you're an Egyptologist and you have some good mummy stories, we want to hear it. Yeah. You know what? If you have any good mummy story, we want to hear it. Uh, Wrap it up in an email and send that email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?